Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6 tonight, the book of Isaiah and chapter 6, and I'll read the first eight verses of this great chapter, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, starting with verse 1, the Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy! Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. There will be seasons in your life where you'll wonder, where's God? It will seem as though God is absent. It will seem like He's vacated His throne. It will seem that your prayers fall on deaf ears. And you'll wonder, where's God? When I was a junior in college, I had been dating a young lady for a couple of years and we were good friends, um, but we weren't serious about things, but it was probably headed in that direction. But she was graduating. I still had a year and a half of college. She believed that God had prepared her and, and uh, ministered in her life in a way where she felt that God wanted her to teach in a Christian school in Indiana. And uh, was passionate about that, very excited about that opportunity. I still had a year and a half of college, and, and God was working in my heart toward preaching and toward evangelism. And quite frankly, we, we would talk about those things, and it just seemed like we were going opposite directions. I mean, how in the world could someone who was passionate about teaching at a Christian school, how could that mesh with somebody who desired to be on the road and preach revivals? You know, it, it just didn't seem to make sense. And and, and we thought we must be out of God's will in dating each other because we're going different directions. And we thought about that and talked about that. And one day after lunch, we were together and we decided we were going to end our relationship. That we just couldn't possibly be doing what God wanted us to do because he was leading obviously in different directions. So we ended it. And I went to an afternoon class. I had an upper-level speech class in, that after, in the afternoon slot. And I went up there, and it was a tight-knit group. We were all speech minors, and we were all in classes together a lot. And always had a lot of fun in that class. But that day, I chose a seat over by the window away from everybody else because I couldn't stop crying. Now, I'm not a crier. But that day, I couldn't stop crying. 
all of a sudden there was this hole in my heart. All of a sudden I, 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 I felt vulnerable and I, I felt empty. And, and, and I remember sitting in that class as the teacher tried to teach thinking, God, where are you? It was 1975. I was scheduled to preach three revival meetings in the city of Los Angeles. I had never been to the state of California, much less the city of Los Angeles. I was living in the Midwest at the time and got in my car. I had, a, I had a Volkswagen Beetle. Got in that car and began to drive cross country to Los Angeles. We didn't have GPS. We had maps. For you young people, that's a piece of paper with lines on it. Numbers on top of the line. And you follow the line to where you're going. And, and uh, speed limit was 55 miles an hour. No interstate highways, just two-lane roads. And and 55 miles an hour, no air conditioning, that little Volkswagen. And I thought, they lied to me in geography class. There is no Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I mean, after three days, I hadn't seen any water. And I thought, there's no place called California. I thought, where is this place? Finally, I got into the state of California and made my way into Los Angeles, this huge city. And, and I made my way to this church in La Puente, California, right in the heart of Los Angeles. And about 10 o'clock on that Saturday morning, I pulled in the parking lot. I was so relieved to have gotten there. I was so excited about preaching some revivals there and, and uh, got to that church and parked. And there was a man working in the flower beds there by the church, uh, uh, sprucing him up a little bit. And I got out of my car, walked over toward him and introduced myself. And he introduced himself as the pastor. And after we introduced ourselves, he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I'm here to hold a revival. He said, I don't know anything about that. Here I was in the city of Los Angeles. I didn't know a soul. Didn't have a cell phone. Nobody had a cell phone. I had $36 in my pocket. No credit cards. Nobody had credit cards in those days either. There I was. Thinking, what am I going to do? I said, well, thank you, sir. Have a good day. And I got back in my Volkswagen, and I started down that street in front of the church, and I probably drove 10 or 12 blocks and trying to think, what am I going to do? I came to some, what I affectionately call flea bag hotels. There were three of them. And I pulled into the parking lot of the one that looked about the best. And I went into the office, and I spoke to the lady there at the desk. I said, I think I'm going to need to see the manager. She called for the man, and he came out, and he said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I... I'm here in your town for the next six days, and I, I need a place to stay. He said, no problem. I said, well, there's a little bit of a problem. I said, I only have $36. He uh, kind of looked at me, kind of evaluated me, I guess, for a minute there, and he, he reached under the counter, and he grabbed a ring of keys, and he said, follow me. We went out a back door of that hotel office and into a courtyard area. It really didn't, that's probably a, a term that wouldn't describe it, but it was kind of full of junk, old bedroom sets and beds and, and, and dressers and the weeds were growing up. But we walked across this, this courtyard area to an iron door and he took one of those keys and opened it, pushed it back, and we walked into a small little room, probably about 15 by 15, had a tile floor. It had a military cot in the corner with a mattress on it. There was, a, there was a shower, there was a toilet, there was a sink, and there was one metal folding chair. And he said, it's all yours, six bucks a night. I handed him my 
he closed the door. And when he did, I noticed something out of my left peripheral as he closed that door. Above the door, there was a little shelf, and sitting on top of that shelf above the door was a small 13-inch black and white television set. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't, I don't know if I said it out loud, but I, I, I remember thinking, well, at least I have a TV. <laughs> and so I walked over and I, I clicked it on, and, and the channel that came on was showing snow. These, these white lines going across the sc- black screen. And I thought, I don't want to watch snow. I, I'm from the Midwest. I see snow all the time. I'm in California. So I turned the knob, and the next channel was showing the same program. I went all the way around that dial, 13 channels. They were all the same network, static. I remember sitting down in the end of that bed thinking, God, where are you? It was 1983. We were preaching a revival in a church plant in Warrenville, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, west side of Chicago. The pastor was a church planter. He would start a church and then move on once they got a pastor and start another one. And we had been with him a couple other places. A wonderful man, just a tremendous, humble, soul-winning man, loved people, had a wonderful family, had seven children. And they were trying to start this church in Warrenville, and it wasn't going well. I mean, it was like Murphy's Law. If it could go wrong, it went wrong. I mean, we were meeting in an elementary school. The janitor would never show up. We had to break in the building just to have the service. I mean, it was just everything we did. It seemed like that's the way it ended up. Well, I was pulling a fifth-wheel trailer in those days, had my family with me, had two children now, and we were parked there in his, in his driveway of his house. And, and uh, about Wednesday, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, pastor not doing too good. He's hurting. The kids are hurting. His wife's hurting. And I said, I've been thinking that I don't don't know what the love offering will be this week, probably not much, but I I just feel like maybe we ought to give it to the pastor. I think he needs it more than we do. My wife said, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. I always hated it when she agreed with me about stuff like that, but I said, well, let's pray about it a couple of days. And we did, and Friday we determined that's what we would do. Well, Friday night, the last service, it was pretty typical, just not much of a crowd and, and uh, some problems and different things. And we went back to the house and they invited us in for a little bit of fellowship. We went in the house and he had some Kool-Aid and some popcorn and we played with the kids a little bit. And, and finally he pulled out of his pocket an envelope and he said, Billy Gadge, I wanted to give you this love offering. It's, it's, we did our best. I wish it could be more, you know, the, the normal speech, you know. And for the first time in my life, before or after, I took that envelope and I opened it up in his presence and I took that check out. And when I did, I noticed it was for $250. Now, in 1983, that was a lot of money. And that was a massive love offering from any church. I had no idea where they could have got that kind of money. But I'd already determined what we were going to do, and so I turned it over in my hand there, and I took my pen, I began to sign the back of it, and I said, Pastor, my wife and I want to give this to you and your family. Well, he protested, no, no, this is for you. I said, no, sir. We prayed about it. God wants us to give it to you. You can use it. I put it in his pocket, and uh, he began to cry, and his wife began to cry, and all seven kids began to cry, and I got out of there. I mean, no sense hanging around that. <laughs> you know, when you, when you do something that God tells you to do, you feel really good about it. I mean, we went to bed that night. I slept like a rock. I knew we had done what God wants to do. We got in the truck the next morning, hooked our trailer up, and we, we headed to St. James, Minnesota. And I had my gas tanks fueled up, and we started up the highway through Wisconsin there, I-94, and we got to La Crosse, Wisconsin. And both 
of my gas tanks were on empty. And I still had over 100 miles to go. And I said, Lord, I'm out of gas. What am I going to do? He said, well, get some. I said, well, that's easy for you to say. But I don't have any money. I gave all my money to the pastor of Chicago. I still didn't have a credit card or debit card or anything like that. I, I didn't have any money. The Lord said, you got money. Pull over and get gas. I said, Lord, I don't have any money. He said, you got money. And at that point, he reminded me in the trailer, we had bought this, this little set of a pail and some sh little shovels for the kids to play in the sand with. The handle had broken on the pail, and the kids wanted to keep it. So we had that yellow bucket in the trailer, and the kids were throwing our pennies in there. We weren't saving it for anything. They just, every time we had change, hey, you got any pennies? And, and they'd throw it in that bucket. It was about three quarters full. And the Lord said, use that. And I pulled off that interstate into a service station, and we bought 40 gallons of gas with pennies. I will never forget the expression on the guy's face as he counted them two by two on that glass counter. Nor will I, I forget the expression of the seven people standing behind me waiting to pay for their gas. But God miraculously got us to St. James. We came to that little church, Manor Baptist Church, little white clapboard building on the edge of town and, and uh, met the pastor. And, and uh, he, he had uh, uh, just a small little congregation there of about uh, uh, 15 people, none of them younger than 65 years old. And, uh, and uh, he said, Brother Getch, uh, we're doing our best here. He said, I'm working a full-time job at a lumber yard 50 hours a week, but we're glad you're here and can't wait to hear the preaching. And we were glad to be there. Sunday morning, taught Sunday school lesson, morning service. And afterwards, nobody said anything about lunch. So we went out to the trailer and we had a few canned goods in there. We pulled those together and I thought, well, they'll feed us tonight, you know. And so we had a little lunch and that night I preached the service and, and Pastor came up after me. He said, "Well, I got to work tomorrow, so I got to get to bed. And I'll see you tomorrow night at seven. And we went to bed hungry. And the next morning, I, I got up, and Mondays were normally the day I'd wash my rig down, get all that road grime off. You know, I tried to take care of what God had given us, and and uh, I was washing my trailer, and I was having a pity party. I said, "Lord, where are you? I mean, I know you were in Chicago." <laughs> I mean, you spoke to me pretty clearly there. And I know you were in La Crosse. You got us some gas. But Lord, what about now? I mean, I'm okay to fast. I do be good to fast this week. But I got a wife in there and I got two kids. And if I don't take care of them, I've denied the faith. I'm worse than an infidel. That's what you said. Now, where are you? <laughs> there are going to be times where you wonder, where's God? And you know what? I think Isaiah is there in this passage. The king has died. We don't know all the circumstances there, but the king has died. And Isaiah's thinking, okay, what do we do now? Well, we're without leadership. We're vulnerable to our enemies. Lord, where, where are you? What's, what's the next step for us? And I believe in kind of a subliminal way. This passage has great uh, uh, truth. It, it has wonderful application. But I believe underneath all of it, underneath the surface, Isaiah shows us three locations where we can always find God. Now, we know from Scripture, in reality, God never leaves us nor forsakes us. That's His promise to us. But we are prone to wander. We're prone to go astray. 
And oftentimes we get in a place in life where we wonder, where's God? Now, yesterday morning we discovered who is God. Tonight, let's try to figure out where is God. Where is God when He seems absent? How do we get back to a location where once again we can sense His presence and His power and His protection and His provision in our life? The first location where you'll always find God is the holy place. Did you notice there in verse 1 and 2, as Isaiah gets this vision of heaven, he sees the throne of God, and around it are these seraphims, these angelic beings, and they have six wings. With twain they covered their face, and with twain they covered their feet, and with twain they did fly. And did you notice in verse number 4, one cries unto another, verse 3, and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God is always in the holy place. When God seems absent in our life, when God seems to have vacated His throne, when our prayers seem to be falling on deaf ears, we got to get ourselves back to the holy place. Holy is the qualifier of everything that God is. God is a God of love, but His love is a holy love. God is a God of wrath but His wrath is a holy wrath. God is a God of mercy, but His mercy is a holy mercy. Holy is the qualifier. We have a holy Bible. We have a holy spirit to guide us into the truth of the Bible. God is holy. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness? In Psalm 99 and verse 9, the psalmist said, Worship toward thy holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. John the Revelator in chapter 15 and verse 4 of Revelation said, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou only art holy. Now, understand, holy and unholy cannot coexist. Righteousness and unrighteousness have nothing in common. And if we want God's presence and power and protection and provision in our life, we've got to stay in the holy place. Way back in the book of Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, God said, I am the Lord that brought thee out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Paul told the Corinthians, and they struggled with holiness. They struggled with, with separating from the world. They, they were often drawn back into some of the old sins of the flesh. But Paul told that church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the sight of God. It's amazing how humanly we try to perfect certain things in our life. Uh, we heard a special a moment ago. You know what? They practiced. They practiced for the service. They probably practiced before that. They practiced. Why? Because they're trying to perfect as best they can the song to minister to us. Someone who plays the piano has spent some time practicing, taking lessons, working on their skill, trying to perfect it. They don't want to come up here and make a bunch of mistakes. So they work at perfecting their skill of playing the piano. Someone who plays sports, 
someone who plays uh, basketball. What are they doing? They're practicing, perfecting their skills so they get better and better and better and can win and enjoy uh, sports. Uh, you think of someone in business. They're always reading. They're always studying other businesses. They're trying to figure out how can we make a successful business. They're perfecting things. How hard are we perfecting holiness in our life? Do we work at being holy? As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, I know people today in the 21st century say, Well, Brother Getch, yeah, but it's, it's 2020. I mean, God doesn't expect us to live like they did back in the Bible. This is an age of grace. We have liberty. Well, be careful. Be careful. It's interesting in Titus 2 and verse 12, God talks about the grace of God that saves us in verse 11. And then in verse 12, He says, teaching us. In other words, what does this grace teach us? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. You know, if you're reading that in the first century or the 21st century, it's still this present world. God determined that His people were to be holy. In fact, in, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, God says, Follow peace and holiness without which no man can see the Lord. You're not going to sense His presence in your life. You're not going to sense His provision. You're not going to sense His power in your life if you're living in an unholy way. So when God seems distant, when God seems separated from us, we must get back to the holy place. But then Isaiah shows us a second location, the humble place. When Isaiah saw this vision of the throne of God, what was his response? Verse 5, woe is me. Now, if you go back to chapter 5, he's, he's declaring a lot of woes. And they're all on other people. You know, woe unto them that call good evil and evil good and bitter for sweet, sweet for... I mean, he goes through a whole list of them. I think there's six of them. But here he says, woe is me. In Isaiah 66 and verse 2, this verse has become one of my favorite verses. It says in part, to this man will I look. Now, I don't know about you, but I need God to look my way. I need God's favor. I can't be what I'm supposed to be as a Christian without God? I, I can't be the husband I'm supposed to be without God's help. I, I can't be the dad, the granddad. I can't be the preacher. I can't be the staff member. I, I, I can't do anything without him. I need his favor. I need his blessing. And it says, to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit and that trembleth at my word. God resists the proud, but he gives grace under the humble. See, God doesn't hang around His abominations. These six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination, a proud look. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination unto the Lord. I, I love Psalm 138, verse 6. It says, though the Lord be high, well, I guess he's, he's above everybody, right? We learned that yesterday. He's above all. He's as high as you can go. He's the creator of the universe. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. 
but the proud he knoweth afar off. Isn't that interesting? If I asked you, who do you respect? Well, it would depend a little bit of the, the context of the conversation. In other words, if I was talking to a piano player, who do you respect about, you know, playing the piano? They would say somebody that is a little better than they are, right? I mean, somebody that's a little farther along, has taken more lessons or can play with, with better skill. They, they would look up to them, right? They, they would say, I, I hope to play like them someday. I, I hope to perfect my skills to that level. If you talk to somebody playing basketball, who do you respect? Well, they would look to maybe a high school player if they're in junior high, or they'd look to a college player if they're in high school, or they would look to an NBA player if they're in college. they say, boy, if I could be like him, if I could play the game like him, they look up, see? In business, if you're trying to build a business from the ground up, you're looking at other models. You're looking at businesses that have been successful and have a good product and treat their employees right and make some money or whatever. You're looking up to somebody that's already done it. Well, who does God respect? Nobody to look up to. He's on high. The Bible says he has respect unto the lowly. But the proud he knows afar off. See, if you want to create distance between you and God, just get a proud heart. Just let pride enter in your life. It'll separate us from God. By humility and fear of the Lord are honor and riches and life. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Traveling as I have for 46 years around the world, I've met a lot of great Christians. And, and by the way, there are a lot of great Christians in the ministry. There are a lot, of, a lot of pastors and missionaries and other evangelists that I know that are just wonderful people of God. But I'll tell you this, there are a lot of great Christians in the pew, too. And I've met some of the, some of the greatest Christians sitting in the pew, working in the church in some way, just wonderful people. But I'm going to tell you something, there's a common thread that runs through all of them. When you find greatness, as we would determine it, in spiritual things, you're going to find a common thread in those people, and that's humility. When I was growing up, I heard the name Paul Levine. He was an evangelist. I'd never heard him preach. I'd never seen a picture of him. I knew really very little about him. I heard others talk about him, give illustrations about his ministry. And, and I remember as a boy thinking, boy, I hope someday in my life I get to meet Paul Levine. Paul Levine was saved at the age of four. Paul Levine was called to preach at the age of four. Don't underestimate what's going on in that room back there. Dr. Levine's mother said that when... Paul Levine was called to preach at four. He would come home after church on Sunday night, pull out the piano stool, jump up on it, stand on it with his little Bible and start preaching. Paul Levine finished high school at the age of 15 and went into full-time evangelism. Never went to college. He didn't even have a driver's license. He began to walk, hitchhike, take the train. And he began to preach all over the Midwest he was raised in Iowa. He began to preach in those Iowa farmlands, up into Minnesota, over to Wisconsin, down to Illinois, Indiana, Michigan. If you go to any of those states I just mentioned tonight, and you mention Paul Levine, somebody will come up to you and say, I got saved under Paul Levine. Guaranteed. 
When Paul Levine was 17, he had a man traveling with him named Bob Finley. Bob Finley was completely blind. And Bob Finley would lead the singing, and Paul and Bob would play their mandolins and sing, and, and crowds would come and hear Paul preach. I heard these stories, and I thought, man, Paul Levine had a, had a, a, a radio program out of Waterloo, Iowa called Bible Echoes, still on today in the Midwest. He had an organization called Bible Tracks Incorporated, printing thousands, millions of tracks. In fact, they've now printed some 8 million tracks. Organization still going on. I went in a Flying J uh, truck stop the other day, and I opened the, 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 the stall door to, to use the restroom, and two tracks fell on the floor. One in Spanish, one in English, both printed by Bible Tracks Incorporated. Paul Levine. Well, I had heard these stories, and I thought, I want to meet Paul Levine, but I never had the chance. In 1981, I was preaching a revival in Danville, Illinois, at the Faith Baptist Church. And one day, a knock came on my trailer door. We didn't have cell phones in those days. Someone said recently, you know, wouldn't it be great if somebody would invent a cord that you could attach to your phone and to the wall so we wouldn't lose it all the time? That's already been thought of, okay? So... So they, they, they knocked the door and said, Brother Guess, you have a phone call. Well, I ran in the church like you always did in those days, took the phone call, and the voice on the other end of that phone call said, this is Dr. Bill Rice III at the Bill Rice Ranch. Whoa. Now, I, 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 I knew the Rice family. I knew, I'd heard Dr. John R. Rice preach. I, I knew Joe B. Rice. I knew Bill Rice. I knew, I knew uh, uh, the Rice family, that name. I knew about the Bill Rice Ranch. I, I, I'd, heard Dr. B, uh, I'd heard some of these men preach, and, and, but I'd never met Bill Rice III. And he said, Brother Gatch, you don't know, we, we don't know each other, but I've heard some about your ministry, and, and uh, I'd like to invite you to come and preach a youth week here at the Bill Rice Ranch in the summer of 1983. Wow. Man, I thought I'd just made the all-star team. I mean, the Bill Rice Ranch. Now, it wasn't the teenagers that I was going to get to preach to that excited me. What excited me was the Bill Rice Ranch started in 1953 as a burden in the heart of Bill and Kathy Rice, whose oldest daughter was deaf. And they started that ranch there outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, bought a big piece of land. They started the ranch in order that deaf people could hear the gospel in sign language. So in 1953, they opened and they, they began to have these weeks for the deaf, but, but they, there weren't that many deaf that would come every week of the year. So they had some, some other types of meetings, you know, couples retreats and family camps and youth weeks. And they had their first youth week in the summer of 1953. And they asked Dr. Paul Levine to be the first youth speaker ever at the Bill Rice Ranch. And until the mid nineties, Paul Levine preached every youth week that was ever conducted at the Bill Rice Ranch. Some summer, six or seven weeks of teen weeks, Paul Levine preached every one of them. Well, as the ranch got larger and more kids came, they began to add a second speaker to kind of take some of the speaking load off of Dr. Paul, and he, Dr. Bill was asking me to be that second speaker. I was going to get to meet Paul Levine. Man, I couldn't wait for that week to come, and it finally did, and I remember that first night I walked in a side door to the John R. Rice Auditorium. Walked in that side door, there were 1,400 teenagers sitting there ready for the first service. 
I walked in, and I thought, man, I hope I get to meet Paul Levine tonight. And I was just kind of lost in my thoughts, and a man came up to me, and he put out his hand, and he said, welcome, Dr. Getch, to the Bill Rice Ranch. It was Bill Rice III. We had still had never met until just then. And I said, thank you for having me. He said, uh, uh, come on, I, I want to introduce you to Paul Levine. Well, I turned and I looked, and on the platform, there was absolutely nothing on this platform. It was a high platform. There's nothing on it except a piano on the far end and a pew that went all the way across the top of that platform. It had to be 30 feet long. And sitting on the end of that pew was Dr. Paul. I'd seen a picture of him now. I thought, that's him. He was sitting there, and he had his Bible open, and he had a spiral notebook hanging out of it, and he had his pen, and he's writing. And I thought, he's, he's studying. He's, he's preparing his message. We don't want to go up and disturb him. But Dr. Bill said, come on, let's meet Dr. Paul. I followed him up the steps. We got up there, and, and, and Dr. Bill said, Dr. Paul, this is John Getch. Dr. Paul, he closed his Bible. He stood up. He grabbed my hand with both hands. He said, Brother Getch, I'm so happy to meet you. I can't wait to hear you preach. I thought, hear me preach. I'm here to hear you preach. <laughs> he said, here, sit by me. Sit by me. Oh, wow. I sat down on that pew next to Paul Levine. He opened his Bible again, flipped that notebook out, continued to write his sermon. I'm trying to read it. I can't read his handwriting. <laughs> when we started the service, those kids began to sing, and they gave announcements. And finally, Dr. Bill got up, and he said, Now, young people, tonight we get to hear Dr. Paul Levine. Dr. Levine has been preaching for decades. He's preached every youth week here since 1953. He said, Dr. Paul, how many sermons have you preached here at the ranch? Dr. Paul, he's not even listening. He's still got the Bible open, notebook open, and he's not even listening. But he heard his name, and his head kind of popped up, and he said, uh, uh, 1,206. And Dr. Bill said, think of that, young people, 1,206 times. This man that we get to hear tonight has preached to teenagers just like you. And, and he went on introducing them, and Dr. Paul, he punched me in the ribs, and he said, I really don't know how many times I preached. <laughs> he said, all I know is I ran out of sermons a long time ago. That was Dr. Paul. I remember a few years later preaching with him again there, and it was a Thursday night, and the week, the week was rough. The kids just weren't responding. They, there's just not that break that you like to see at camp, and it was Dr. Paul's turn to preach, and we were sitting there on that platform, and he's got that Bible and that notebook out, and he's studying and praying, I could tell, and during the final special, just before he preached, I, I kind of just tapped him lightly on the knee, and I said, Dr. Paul, I'm praying for you. He leaned into me. He said, oh, thanks, Brother Gitch. Thanks. I need it. He said, you know, people tell me, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. I do. But I don't trust the devil. And it was things like that that he said to me that began to shape my life and ministry. A few years ago now, I was asked to preach at what was called the Holiness Conference up in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin at the Falls Baptist Church. They had lots of preachers there to do sessions and preaching. I was asked to come just one afternoon and do a three-hour session. Can you imagine? From 1 o'clock to 4 o'clock. And it was the only session offered. Everybody had to come. That's the worst session of a conference. Right after lunch and three hours. No break. Those preachers crammed in there, and I did my best. I did my best to hold their attention. I mean, I used PowerPoint for the first time in my life. I would have stood on my head and gargled peanut butter if it would have helped. I mean, they were sleepy. They were tired. And, and finally, I, I got through, finished, 
And boy, they were out of there. They were going out the back door to go get some dinner and come back for the great service that night. And, and my job was done. And I, I packed up my stuff and I was, I was coming off the platform and all those people were going out the back except for one. He was in his 90s now. Legally blind. Cancer riddling his body. His wife already in heaven. And he would go with her in two more weeks. But he came hobbling, feeling his way down that center aisle. And he had that Bible open in his hand, and that styro notebook flipped out. And he's coming down that aisle. And man, I jumped off that platform. I said, Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul, I didn't know you were here. And you know what he said? He didn't say, hey, Brother Catch. You know what he said? I missed letter E under point five. <laughs> I need letter E under point five, Brother Gedge. I thought, you don't need letter E under point five. I mean, you're going to heaven in two weeks. Just go over there and wait. You know. <laughs> I said, ah, Dr. Paul, you don't need it. Tears began to run down his face. Oh, Brother Gedge, I got to have it. I want to love God more. I want to know his word better. What was point E under, what was letter E under point five? That was Dr. Paul. And that's why God used him and continues to use him after his death. Humility, the humble place. But Isaiah shows us one more. He shows us the harvest place. In verse number eight, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said, I hear my, send me. God is always in the harvest place because that's why He sent His Son. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And friends, when God seems absent in our life, you know what you do? Grab some tracks. Go knock on some doors. God will meet you there. When God seems absent, call pastor. Say, Pastor, is there anybody in the hospital I could go visit? Any of the shut-ins need a visit? Any of the elderly need some help? Get in the harvest place. God will meet you there. The Bible gives us the account of Jesus' birth, and it's an exciting account. We've just come through Christmas season. We preach a lot on the birth of Christ. There's a lot of great messages there. And then, of course, we have the end of Christ's life and His ministry and, and His death and burial and resurrection and ascension, all those things. That's great preaching. But there's that middle part that the Bible's kind of strangely silent about Jesus. I mean, from about the time he's two to the time he's 30, there's, all, there's nothing except for one, one event. Remember it? He was 12. And his parents took him up to Jerusalem to a feast, to a, to a, to a, 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 a sacrifice. And they traveled in a band of people, I suppose, for accountability or fellowship or maybe safety. I don't know. But, but they traveled in a group of people. And they all go up to Jerusalem. They get up there and they celebrate the feast, and then they start for home. Same big group of people, they're traveling home. And they got a, one day from their, in their journey, got a day journey in, and all of a sudden, they realized they had lost Jesus. They lost God. How do you lose God? But they did. Now, I, the Bible doesn't give us all the information there, but you can kind of, you know, the video in your mind, you know. Mary says, Joseph, where's Jesus? Uh, 
I don't know, Mary. I haven't seen him. I thought he was with you. Well, Joseph, when did you last see him? Well, when we were in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem? Uh, Joseph, that was a day ago. Where, where's Jesus? Where, where is he? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? Where's Jesus? They realized they had lost God. So what did they do? They hurried back to Jerusalem, didn't they? And you remember where they found him? In the temple. And he's answering the questions of the scholars. He's, he's showing them the scriptures and giving them insight into the word of God. And, 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 and again, Mary comes to him. And all you have in the Bible are words. There's, there's no emotion. You have to provide the emotion. There's just words. Jesus comes. Here's the words. Son, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Where hast thou been? Those are the words. That wasn't the emotion. Son, where have you been? Are you okay? Are you okay? Oh, we're worried sick. We're worried sick. Son, where have you been? You remember what Jesus said? How is it that you sought me? Wist you not that I must be about my father's business? You should have known where to look. I'd be in the harvest place. I'd be in the serving place. I'd be doing God's work. Listen, when God seems absent, go back to the holy place. Go back to the humble place. Go back to the harvest place. God will meet you there. By the way, that, that girl I broke up with that day, we've been married now 46 years. But see, at that moment in our relationship, I wasn't ready for marriage. God had some purging to do in my life. God, God had some things He wanted to, to do in my life to get me to the holy place before I would ever be ready for something like marriage. And that six days in that hotel in Los Angeles, that door never opened. No one went in, no one came out of that room for six days. I didn't speak one word. I didn't eat one bite of food. I had no money to go anywhere, do anything, eat anything. And I've said it many times, and I've preached thousands of revivals since. That's the best revival being I've ever been in. Because it was just me and God in the humble place. See, when I came out of college, I was ready to preach to the thousands. Where's the stadium, God? Fill it up. I'll preach. I got three messages. Let me at them. You know, God said, whoa, whoa, whoa. We've got to go to the humble place first. And that Monday morning in St. James, out behind my trailer having that pity party, all of a sudden a 1954 Ford pulled in the parking lot, old antique car. Behind the wheel was a man that weighed over 400 pounds. People affectionately called him Tiny. He didn't go to that church there in St. James, but he had been in the service the night before. He and his wife and two little girls lived 40 miles away. And in their town, there was no church. In fact, this was the closest church to their home. And he asked to see my wife and I after the service that Sunday night, and we sat on the front row with he and his wife and two girls, and that large man just began to weep along with his wife, and he said, Brother Guess, we had no church. We don't know what to do. We don't know whether to drive all this way, 80 miles, to come to church. He said, our girls are young. It's hard on them. And he said, we don't, we don't know anything about starting a church. We, we don't, we, where would we get a pastor? And they just kind of poured their hearts out. And I was young. I didn't know what really to tell them, but I was willing to cry with them and pray with them. We gave them the best advice we knew how. And here he was, Monday morning. 
And he pulled in, he saw me behind my trailer, and he rolled down his window, and he said, Brother Gatch, do you need any food? I thought, who pulls into a church parking lot in an old beat-up antique car and asks a question like that? I put my hose, my brush down. I kind of strolled over to the window of that car and said, what are you talking about? He said, do you need any food? I said, well, sure. He said, get in the car. I got in that old car. We started driving. We were driving to his house 40 miles away. And he says, uh, I, I said, Brother Tiny, what's this all about? He said, I work for the Jolly Green Giant. I thought, are you the mascot or what, what, what do you do? I didn't know it at the time, but St. James is in one of the most fertile valleys of our country. And there are tens of thousands of acres of vegetable farms. And Del Monte, Jolly Green Giant, all these processing companies, they have huge plants. And this man, Tiny, was an executive with Jolly Green Giant. He said, I came out of my house this morning to go to work, and I came into my garage. He said, Brother Gatch, I have four freezers in my garage, and they're all chucked full of food. He said, we misprint packages. We, we mislabel stuff. We damage packages. He said, I bring it home. I throw it in those freezers. He said, I came out of there, and I wonder, he said, I wonder if that preacher needs any food. Now I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, this is great. This is amazing. This is awesome. But seriously, God, green beans? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm hungry, but broccoli? I mean, couldn't you speak to a beef farmer or somebody, you know? We got to that house. He flipped that garage door up, and there were those freezers. He opened those lids. And I didn't know it, but Jolly Green Giant made lasagna. They made Swiss steak. He started loading that 54 Chevy up with, with or Ford with, with food. We came back, we had to use the church freezer, the pastor's freezer. We were, we were giving away food by the end of the week just to have people come to church. Here, have a box of food. And you know what God told me? He said, you just stay on the front row ministering to people that are hurting, and I can feed you. Does God seem absent tonight? Because he seems missing. You can find him. He's there in the holy place in the humble place, in the harvest place. And we need him. Let's pray.